Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 8, Episode Number 4. In this week's episode, we covered a lot of ground. Uh, the intention was originally just to go through the forensic evidence. As I started to research for the episode, I realized there weren't much forensics put into uh, the investigation of this case, certainly not into the trial. And listeners had caught some things that I hadn't caught. Namely, as we mentioned in last week's follow-up, the, the lividity evidence. And another listener caught, uh, after looking up a TV guide, that Mabel's trial testimony about Bonanza starting at noon was inaccurate, which caused us to dig even deeper, which led to the discovery of, which I found out later, was actually already discovered by some listeners on Facebook that I had missed on the page. But the discovery of Agnes's glasses being on the nightstand and uh, the original interview with Mabel, where she did not say that Bonanza started at noon. In fact, she said she was she was cooking chicken for her cat before Bonanza started at one and still confirmed that she got home right about noon. So we covered a lot of ground. There's a lot of new information. We heard about the strange man in the backyard. I know we got a whole bunch of listener questions to get through. I'm joined uh, for the last time, I think, remotely by mike and zach we had to uh, uh because it, we were planning on being back in the studio today but because of a scheduling issue we had to do this last one hopefully remotely uh, but as always from home on zoom is mr mike bussing hey bob and also at home on zoom is mr zach weaver hey hey all right so i have a quick break for an ad and then we're going to get right into your questions Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, Zach, I think that you, being a listener that doesn't know what's going on until you hear the episodes, has probably been going through the same roller coaster that the rest of us has through this case. Did episode four change your opinion on anything or open up any new lines of thought? What did you think about episode four and where we stand right now? So, I mean, I'm trying to stay pretty open minded. So I wouldn't say that it changed my opinion because I don't necessarily have an opinion formed yet. But I would definitely say it's changed some of my lines of thought. And I, and I looked into a few things that, that were questionable to me. 
and and just wanted to look in to see how that played out. So, you know, one of the things we talked about was was Mabel Zabo and her being back from swimming at noon mm-hmm. and knowing that she was back from swimming at noon, but she also knew that she was in the pool by five after 11 or so. So in my head, that doesn't seem very feasible. I was thinking the same thing because it was such a short time. If you're there swimming, it doesn't seem, you know, I mean, you got to swim, get out of the pool, get dried off, get dressed, and then drive home. So I did a little research on my own and found the closest YMCA that has a pool is about nine minutes away. Okay. So realistically, she could have made it home. You know, I was really thinking she couldn't have, but. And again, with that being said, that YMCA is nine minutes away. I don't know if that YMCA was constructed in 2001. Right. And we can do a little more uh, research into that. I got the impression from her testimony that it was somewhere close by. Mm-hmm. And I had the same same thoughts as you. But yeah, I mean, even being nine, 10, 15 minutes away, if she got into the pool a little after 11, swam for 20 minutes, which I don't know if, if you've never swam laps for exercise. It is one of the most difficult exercises you'll ever do. It's it's hard. It takes a lot out of you. So like to swim for 20 minutes is a long time if you're if you're swimming laps. So I could even see you know, if she's in the pool at whatever 8:11:05, swims for 30 minutes, gets out, you know, dries off and changes and then, you know, she leaves there by 11:50 that she would be home right about right about noon. So it, yeah. it, it, it it's it's definitely feasible. Yeah, and that was just one of the things that when I first was looking into it, it didn't seem feasible to me to think that you would be there and be able to swim and get out and drive home. You know what I mean? It just didn't seem feasible. But once I looked into it a little more, it it does seem a little more feasible than I had originally thought. Right. What else did you have? I know you said you did some research on a few things. You know, I, I really am leery about eyewitness statements. You know, one of the things she said is she saw she saw Deborah going to the car at, at about a quarter after 10, 10, 15. But she said she never saw her get in it. Right. So so we can't really assume she was leaving. Right. And then when she goes to, le- when Miss Zabo goes to leave, she says the car is gone. But she really doesn't state what car is gone. She says she looks for Spinney's car and it's gone. Right. Well, if you look, if you look at, a, a couple of people had that, uh, that question I saw on, on social media that, you know, why was Smitty's car gone? But if you go through, if you read the actual transcript that's posted on our website, you see that, that she was very clearly talking about Debbie's car. Okay. And the little blurb that I read said that she always has to, because of the way she backs out, she always has to pay attention to where Smitty's car is at because she has to be careful not to hit it. And she's saying she was had to be careful not to hit his car that day. But then you can almost, it almost reads, I actually have that recorded interview but the recorded interviews they sent me are all completely unlistenable. Like you can barely, barely hear. There's so much background noise because I wanted to hear her tone in that. But the way it read to me was that she was thinking it through as she was remembering. And she's saying, yeah, I, I always know when I back out, I have to watch for Smitty's car. And I, and they were, ta- but they were talking about Debbie's car. And she said, and it was gone. I, th- I, I think it was gone. And so I, to me, like I, I picture her like remembering in her mind's eye as she was backing out that Debbie's car wasn't there anymore because she, you know, I don't know exactly where on the street it was parked and which, you know, how all that played out. But, but to, another thing I wanted to clear up too is how that sequence of events went. So, and I know I said it in the, in the episode, but just to clarify, so she was standing at her kitchen doing dishes and her kitchen window faces the Courtney's house. 
And while she was standing there doing dishes, she saw Debbie walk out and walk to her car. And then she stopped doing the dishes, walked through the house, went into the, you know, out through the garage or whatever, and then got into her car and backed out. And that's when she said when she backed out, she thinks she remembers that Debbie's car is gone. It, it, and it's important to point out, point out if it wasn't clear, Debbie and Smitty were parked on the road. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like if, say, you know, Debbie walked out to the car and walked back in the house. It would just seem odd because it's a long walk. It's not like she was parked like in the driveway right outside the door, like, oh, I want to run out and put these pillows in the car or whatever, and then go back inside. Now, she had to walk all the way across the yard, all the way out to the street to get to her car before she she walked back in. So, I, But as you said, there's no way to say, yes, she left at 1015. We can't say that. It seemed the you know, the evidence seems to indicate she left somewhere around there, but there's there's no way that we can know that for certain. But I'm 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 very confident in the fact that Debbie was gone at noon when Mabel returned back. You know, at that point she was, you know, the, we we've we've definitely seen through her testimony and through her witness statement that they were always paying attention and keeping an eye out. We haven't got into Joe Zabo's testimony yet, her husband. But all evidence seems to indicate that Debbie's car was in fact gone at noon, which because of the shifting lividity, we know in, in, unless there, I'm looking to get a medical examiner to come on and, and talk about this. I thought about even reaching out to Dr. Pirwani to see if he would come on the show and talk about it. But it, I mean, based on everything we know about lividity, there's just no way that, that Agnes was dead before 1 PM. It just doesn't, it just doesn't add up. I certainly can't say at this point I'm 100% convinced of Debbie's innocence. But at the same time, and there's, there was another post, a long discussion that was going on the fan page where people were talking about somebody had posted that, you know, they don't think we were, that I was fair to the Fort Worth PD and saying that it was an inadequate job of investigating and, you know, that we're, you know, I'm becoming closed minded. I'm not. I'm not at all. I'm not, I'm not at all saying I'm convinced of Debbie's innocence, but this is the issue. The state arrested Debbie, took her to trial, and convicted her based on a theory. Now, people will say, well, yeah, well, they, but they don't have to prove how something happened, just that it did happen. That's true. And from a legal standpoint, the state is not required to prove exactly how a crime was committed. But from a practical standpoint, if you looked at the evidence and, and, and their theory is that, that Debbie was in there early in the morning and killed her her dad and then her mom came home walked in on it and she chased Debbie back or chased Agnes back into the bedroom and murdered her there and then we look at the evidence and find out that that's just not possible for a number of reasons you know one being I, there's you're not going to convince me at this point that Agnes wasn't napping i think the glasses seal the deal on top of all the other evidence when this happened you know and but for me what i'm looking at it's like the state was absolutely wrong about how they think this happened and when they think this happened. So I can no longer rely on and, and say, oh, well, the, you know, the state convicted her, a jury convicted her. So, you know, that's kind of our starting point. At this point, to me, that has to be thrown out and we have to start over because they, whether she's innocent or guilty, the state got it completely wrong. And uh, one of the, I don't think we have any questions about this, so I'll touch on it here. But one of the points made was, you know, that I said that the state or the, the police didn't focus in on the strange man in the backyard. And somebody said, well, yes, they did. They brought somebody in for questioning and, and he had 100% alibi. But that, first of all, I've yet to see any record 
that the composite sketch was shared with the public. To me, that's a huge fail. You have one eyewitness saying there was a, and it was a distinct thing. The guy was a very tall, six foot three or more man with dark hair. And to not even share that with the, with the public and say, hey, we're looking for this guy, I think was a big mistake. Now, maybe they did, and I just haven't found it yet, but so far I haven't seen any indications they did. As far as them bringing somebody in, like that is an exercise in futility that that was not running down that lead. And, and this is what I mean by that. There was, I believe it was an officer and we'll get into it more depth. I'm sure, I'm sure later, but there was an officer that pulled somebody over or something, somehow or another, an officer saw the composite and said, Hey, that looks like this guy. So they call this guy in for questioning. As it turns out, the guy's got a solid alibi and it wasn't him. Well, that doesn't tell us anything. So let's say, and what I mean is, let's say they pulled that guy in and he's like, oh yeah, I was there. I'm a cable man and I was in their backyard on that day, you know, fixing their cable lines. Here's the, you know, my paperwork. Now we have cleared that lead if that had happened because, okay, now we know who that was and we know why he was there. But by bringing someone in, that is the only thing they did was prove that the man they saw wasn't him. It's still wide open. We still have no idea who that guy was or why he was there. Like that is not that is it, it, it is not good enough, in my opinion, to wipe out that lead because you talk to one guy who wasn't the guy. Does that make sense? Yeah, I get where you're going with that. So you know, my issue with the point that I was trying to make was we have a lot of evidence that suggests the crime didn't occur until, or that the murders actually didn't occur until after 1 p.m. And we have a lot of evidence. Let me put it this way. All of the evidence that we have indicates Agnes at least wasn't killed till after 1 p.m. All of the evidence that we have indicates that Debbie was gone prior till noon. And that's important to think about. Now, that's not that's not saying that some of the evidence, you know, that there was one witness that says they saw her at the house at one o'clock and the other one says they left at 10 or the only witnesses we have to Debbie being there was Mabel Zabo, who was convinced that she was gone by noon. So when you have all the evidence says she's gone at least by noon, likely by 10, 15, 10, 30, and then all of the evidence indicates that Agnes wasn't killed at least until after 1 p.m., that's a big problem. And then all of the evidence we have as far as anyone actually being at the house around 1 o'clock, the time when the murders would have occurred, was that there was a man in the backyard. The only witness we have about anybody being there that wasn't Agnes or Lloyd was this man in the backyard. So you got these three stanchions of this case when you're looking at it objectively. Before we get into the blood, everything indicates that the dude in the backyard probably has to have something to do with the crime. And that Debbie almost certainly was gone before the crime occurred. Now, now we've still got a long way to go. And other things may shake out. We may find more and different evidence. We've got to dig into Debbie's alibi. And I've read through some of it. But I want to, as we've done with this, go through and verify certain elements and see if we can track specific times where we know where she was. But when you have all the evidence points that way and the state still goes to trial with a theory that contradicts all of that. And then the, the man in the backyard 
is just dropped out of the narrative because of the blood evidence. In my opinion, they didn't do a thorough enough job. In my opinion, they didn't do thorough enough of a job investigating to begin with. You know, the, the crime scene photos, we, we are, there was a, for, as a contrast, in Jim Melgar's murder, her season six case, we had almost a thousand crime scene pictures. We could pick apart every detail in that scene. Now, obviously, O. Maurice in season six wasn't my favorite because in my issue with him was he was skewing and twisting the evidence to point at Sandy. You know, we found very obvious signs of a burglary that he ignored in his report, but he had pictures of them because he was, you know, he was he was playing as an arm of the state there and trying to convict Sandy. In this case, we've got just a couple dozen pictures. There, as an example, I saw Don McElhinney posted on the on the fan page the other day uh, a shot of the front door, the the carpet in front of the front door, something I hadn't noticed before. But there's a very obvious blood stain right in front of the front door. Which is the uh, was the opposite side of the couch where Smitty was first attacked. So I mean I don't know what exactly that means. Somebody said they thought it looked like cast off to me. It looks more like drip bud, like somebody's bleeding a lot and is kind of like kind of poured in a probably an eighteen inch pattern onto the floor. But that wasn't even mentioned at trial. I don't have anywhere in the files his actual CSI report that I can reference. But in the crime scene photos, the doors open and there's this blood stain on the floor right in front of the opening next to Lloyd's shoes, but he never closes the door to take a picture of the backside of it, which if there's any kind of spatter pattern or cast-off pattern, that's, you would see it. There's a nice white door right next to it. He never closes the door and takes a picture of it. I, and I don't want to beat up on Patrick Gass, the crime scene investigator, because I don't think he had ulterior motives. I think, and I could tell from, as I stated when he testified on the stand, that he was he he seemed to me to be very honest and trying to do his best to provide accurate information. It just seems to me that he was probably very inexperienced when he did this crime scene and he missed a lot. You know, not taking pictures of the receipt, not getting the, you know any up close pictures of that. There's just lots of things that were missed. So I stand by my opinion that in my that this crime scene was not this crime itself was not adequately investigated for a lot of reasons. And then it seems like once the DNA results came back and they're like, oh. Deborah Parenter's blood is on the scene, case closed, and they just shut off any other evidence to indicate anything else happened. Uh, and I just, I'm not satisfied with it. I went into this thinking that Debbie probably, very likely, may be guilty, but there has to be a reason why all these people want me to look into the case. The, the judge, the DNA expert, the Innocence Project. I did not think that four weeks in I would be in a position where I'm like, it's starting to seem really difficult to come up with a scenario where Debbie did this. See, and I'm, I'm kind of leaning the other way. I have a hard time saying that she didn't return to that house just because she was gone at that instant. Right. That's a good point. But I, I will tell you just kind of looking ahead and I'm not going to get into the details because I don't have them all worked out yet, but she is alibied for much of the afternoon. We have, a, we have at some point she made a trip to Walmart and there's a receipt to verify that she picked her daughter up at school, I think around two 30. So, so we, once we get into her testimony, we're going to track some of that stuff down and figure exactly when and where, but we do have evidence of where she was after say one o'clock, you know, where, where she was after that. And also I believe, and I'll, I'll try to make a note to get into Joe Zabo's testimony this, this week. Uh, I, I read through it a long time ago, but then I need, but I didn't know what I was looking for then. But I believe he said he was kind of outside in the garage working for a lot of the day. 
you know, I, I know that he said he saw Debbie there in the morning when he was outside. So I want to see if he, anytime during the afternoon, if he would have seen her come in and out. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So I do have a question that came to mind that I thought of when I heard the episode and I and it just hit me again. As far as the lividity goes on Agnes, not necessarily her, but just in the overview, is there any reason, like, possibility why it would take longer for lividity to set in? I mean, like, if, as far as, like, blood pressure or medication, because I know you said, it, you know, on the long end, it's 12 hours, but is there any possible reason why it could take longer? You know, I, I, I've read that extreme heat will cause it to take longer, but we're talking like like temperatures over 100 degrees. Okay. And I've heard extreme cold can affect it. I haven't heard anything about blood pressure medicine, but that's a possibility. That's why I'd like to talk to an ME. But the, but the thing is, those the reason there's such a, a wide range of times is because of those issues. So mm-hmm. you know, when you read, you know, wh- how long does it take lividity to fix? Well, typically between 6 and 12 hours. And that is because Generally, so generally speaking, from what I've read, it, that about two hours after someone passes away, lividity will start to become visible to the naked eye. You know, immediately the blood will start to settle. Within two hours, you'll you'll be able to see it, and then starting at around four hours, they say it, it can start to fix. But then not all of it, but the the blood cells start to break down, and that's why it, it fixes. And then generally speaking, like all all circumstances normal then by six hours, lividity is fixed. But then there's that six-hour window because it could be cold, it could be hot, they could be on medicine, there could be all these other issues. And because of all these other things that are going on, it could take another six hours before it fixes. Okay, that makes sense. So that that extra, that that 12-hour time frame is the extreme. Right, yeah. And, I, and, I, and I'm sure there are, I know there are exceptions to that. But they're looking at, you know, the probably the 99.9%. You know, there, there's outliers, I'm sure, where certain conditions cause lividity not to fix until much, much, much later. But they don't fit into the norm. So that, so that, that from six hours to 12 hours, that six-hour window for them to fix is what we typically see with all different elements considered. Weather, medicine, body, you know, anatomy, different things, all of that together is why that window is there. No, that was, that's a perfect explanation. I, I just wasn't 100% sure how all that worked. Yeah. And, and take it with a grain of salt too, because obviously I'm not a doctor. I mean, I've just, I've read a lot about this, but I, I, I don't know. I'd like to get a doctor and to see and to talk about it. And, and there could be some circumstance where maybe 
that time doesn't fit. But it, but the thing is, it fits with the rest of the evidence that we have. You know, where you have the the lividity suggests it happened after one. Agnes's stomach is completely empty, which means she you know she hadn't eaten for a pretty long period of time, several hours. Uh, which would suggest that obviously we're we're very. That's why originally I was like, well, we're, we it's not like if she had breakfast at seven in the morning and was killed at ten, there'd still be something in her stomach, you know. But there's nothing in her stomach, so so time had passed, and the banana in, in Lloyd's stomach, the fact that she was napping, and I you know I I still and, and I concede that different people are different. Lots of lots of people are different as far as how their families react, but I'm still personally having a hard time imagining. Debbie being over there and while she's there to visit her parents that her mom goes back and takes a nap and dad sits down to watch TV. It just seems odd to me. To me, those are just, and that's just strictly opinion based on my own anecdotal evidence. So it means nothing. But to me, what I'm seeing in my mind is it makes sense that, okay, she was there after she left. Then they're like, okay, well, I'm going to take a nap and I'm going to chill out and watch TV a little bit before work. And then all this happened. You know, there's, there's just, there's just a lot. And then the, the dog barking, the man in the backyard, there's just, what I'm getting at is if the lividity evidence said, oh, she must have died after 1 p.m., and then all the other evidence indicated, no, she probably died at 10 in the morning, you know, say there was no evidence she took a nap, say the state's theory was correct, then I would say, okay, there's probably something we're missing with lividity. But the, the, that lividity evidence fits with all the other evidence that it happened much later. All right, let's jump into these questions, Bob. Alexis says, do we have a description of the lawnmower guys? Do any of them match the backyard guy that the other neighbors saw? No, uh, Agnes, or, uh, Mabel was asked specifically about that at trial. And she said, no, she almost seemed like, oh, what are you crazy? In her testimony, she's like, oh, no, these were young guys, she said, uh, that, that came to, to mow the grass. And what they were, comp- but, but in that testimony, what we didn't get into this week, is who she was comparing them to is, uh, I think, a week or two before the murders, somebody came by her house. She said two guys in a vehicle came by her house. One person came into the house or, or came up to her at her house and asked if where Agnes Courtney lived, if she lived like across the street. And she just thought it was strange why they came by asking about Agnes. She described that man as very tall with dark hair. Who and I don't know if she was ever shown the composite, but I found that very interesting that a week or two before the murders, some guy who fits the description of the man that was seen in the backyard at the time of the murders was over at uh, Mabel's house, the Zabo's house, asking if Agnes lived across the street. Uh, but it was in that bit of testimony where Bays asked her, did the man who came by two weeks ago could he have been one of the same guys that was there mowing the grass? And she said, oh, no, they were younger guys that were, that were there doing the yard work. Emmett says, how close did Dr. Abelos get to the mystery man? Could she have missed blood stains on dark blue coveralls? Oh, I'm sure she could have missed blood stains on dark blue coveralls. I don't know exactly how close she got, but I, she did say that she went back and the man was walking towards her fence. So, I don't know, I've, I've looked at some aerial views. It's, just, it's, it's hard to tell exactly how close they got the Courtney's had a shed actually in that corner of the yard. So he must've been off to the, I would guess to the right of the shed in order for uh, their, their field of view to line up. But yeah, I mean, you got to keep in mind that when Dr. Avalos saw, saw this man, she wasn't thinking this man just murdered the Courtney. She just saw a dude in the backyard that she thought was weird and that her dogs didn't like. 
So yeah, there there certainly could have been blood on the coveralls, or you know the, the coveralls could have been used if that man was in fact the killer. You know the coveralls could have been something that was used to throw on after the murders to cover up their clothes. And actually, on that note, Mike, I don't know if you have questions about this. I know I've seen questions about it, but people have asked about forced entry, and uh, and there was no sign, and the front door was locked. So I need to go back through all the files to trace this down. But in someone's cross examination, so what, Doctor or Doctor, what um, Officer Galusha said when he went in front to the to the house that all the doors were locked, there was no signs of forced entry. And he got the neighbor from the Zabos across the street to get in. And he specifically said the deadbolt was locked on the front door, which that would have to be done either with a key or from the inside. Now, two things we don't know. One, were the Courtney's keys found? Because that wasn't uh, ever mentioned. There's another big gap that we have. And the other one, if not, if not, if they didn't have the keys, then to lock it from the outside, which seems unlikely, then they would have been locked from the inside. But in the cross-examination of I I, I want to say it was when I was reading through Debbie's testimony the other day, something that I haven't dug into in depth yet. I found out that the Courtney's garage door opener was missing, which is a, a, a I just wrote a note down on my pad to circle back to that. And we're going to get into it. But as far as the method of egress from the killer with the house being locked up, uh, it, it seemed like from that testimony that the garage door opener was missing, which could mean that the killer, you know, just you know, the, the the doors of the house were locked. They probably came in and out through the garage if it was someone other than Debbie and that, you know, they could walk out, hit the sidewalk, push the button, door goes down and they're on their way. That's pretty interesting there. And I want to go back to the guy in the backyard for a minute. Okay. I always have a hard time when people say heights of people. They say, oh, he was about 6'3". He was tall because I I have no judgment. I'm I'm terrible with that. You know, I could see people and be like, they're five six to six twelve. I don't I don't know how tall they are. And I think the other thing really depends on body type because you, me, and Mike are all about the same height. But if someone saw Mike standing across the yard, he's going to appear taller than you or I because he's he's a slim guy. Yeah, it, it, that's possible. And, and and you're right. You know, I don't put a whole lot of faith into height comparisons. What I'm always looking for are the generalities right so like i don't care that dr abelos said the man was six three or six five like that mm-hmm. doesn't i don't care what the, what that because obviously how would she really know what she's comparing it to what i'm looking for is was it a short guy Did, was it not a noticeable height or was it a tall guy you know what i mean like like those are things when you look at somebody like no one would look at any one of the three of us and describe us as a short person true i don't think it in any case I don't think anybody would describe us as tall people. We're all right around six foot one, you know, so we're all, which is kind of average, above average height, you know. So I, I don't think anyone, an identifying characteristic, if someone saw any one of the three of us somewhere, would be our height. You know, it would be one of those things because it doesn't stand out. We're too normal average, right? So, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, for you or me, Zach, they would point out that uh, I know he had, a, he had a beard and he was covered in tattoos. Right. Mm-hmm. Mike's vanilla. Mike could get away with any crime anywhere because he has he has no distinguishable marks, no tattoos, no facial hair. You're just like <laughs> Mike, normal guy. Right. <laughs> so you know, but I just don't think that height would be something people point out. But but I'm always paying attention to when someone says, "Oh, they were short," or "Oh, they were tall." And so to me, where she comes up with six foot three, six foot four, six foot five, whatever that those numbers were, 
is because she saw a very tall man, and in her mind, six foot three equals a very tall man. So, so I, I don't put any weight into that height, but I do put some weight into the fact that she said the man was tall. Okay. Kristen says, since unknown DNA was found on the caller ID box, was it checked for incoming calls? Again, another another either miss or lack of documentation, but so far I have not seen anything about phone records or calls on the caller ID box. Melinda says, I'm a little confused if there's still a question as to when Agnes was at the store that day. I know you are unable to find a receipt. How about checking with the grocery store? Did they have cameras? Did they check camera footage? Uh, it's going to be a frustrating recurring answer, but it does not appear so. You know, we that receipt's got to be somewhere. So, so let me just give you guys a little bit of behind the scenes with me researching this because people have asked for certain documents. So the Fort Worth PD gave me a disc with a ton of files on it. The files are, you know, there's probably, I don't know, 500 files in this file folder in the, on the CD they sent me. And they're all named 12345678588ZXY. None of them are, are titled. So the only way I know what these files are is to literally go one by one, open them up, read through the PDF, figure out what they are, and then back out and rename them. So, so that's part of why like, I, I have little pieces like the, uh, the garage door opener. That's where that came from. Wherever it was, was me going through a file and I was looking for, I think at that time I was looking for the receipt, but I'm opening file after file after file trying to find the receipt. And as I'm reading through, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Wrote it down, change the name of that file, and then move on to the next file because that's not what I'm focusing on right at that, at that moment. I can't say that that never happened. What I, the frustrating part for me is usually what kind of guides me is the trial testimony. And we may get into that more. So what we're going to cover next week, we're going to get into now the detective's testimony in the actual investigation to figure out how they, what leads they checked off and how they landed on Debbie. So that hopefully will answer some of those questions. But, you know, when I'm reading the crime scene investigator's testimony, I'm like, well, surely they'll talk about the receipt. They'll talk about the time. When I'm reading the ME's testimony, surely they'll talk about the time of death and these things. And they just didn't cover any of that stuff. But it does not appear... From what I've seen so far, so Barbara Parks, who was the the owner of Parks Produce, where Agnes was that day, she testified. We've been through her testimony, and all she said is she thinks it was around you know ten in the morning. You know, I remember, don't remember the range of times, but they that would have been the time where I was expecting them to then introduce into evidence. You know, does this receipt look familiar? She was the custodian. You know, she's the one that created that receipt, so that it could be brought in under her. To enter that into evidence, say, does that time say, you know, 9.42 a.m.? Okay, yeah, so would it be fair to say she was there at 9.42 a.m.? Is what I was expecting, and we didn't get that. And again, that's just one of those things where I'm just, I hate to overuse the term red flag, but that's that's what I'm seeing in this case was what seemed on the surface as a very open and shut, kind of a cut and dry case. As I'm digging deeper, every one of these misses these are all indicators. These are things that from someone who studies wrongful convictions, there's just light bulbs going off for me all the time. It's like they never track down time of death. They never even find out when she needed an alibi. The evidence seems to indicate this happened late in the afternoon, but then the evidence also indicates that Debbie was gone by then. They didn't really trace down and, and try to find out who this man was in the backyard. They never tried to figure out what time Agnes left the grocery store. So all this is telling me is Whatever the conclusion of this investigation is, which was that Debbie Perringer did it, cannot be relied upon because 
the method of investigating was flawed. It, it, it was messed up from the beginning. So again, it doesn't mean that they got the wrong answer at the end. What it means is where we are now at the beginning, we can't rely on that. We can't say, well, the police obviously had good reason to think that she did it because as we're going through their investigation, it's like they didn't put any effort into the things that they needed to answer to find out if she did it. Joshua says, if the killer was someone that Lloyd helped put into prison, as the note suggested, and their DNA was on the caller ID box, wouldn't it have shown up in a database? Or is it not common to collect DNA from people when they are incarcerated? It is. I, and I think it was around this time when they started. Actually, no, I think it might have been much later. 2015 is sticking in my mind. But there came a time some years ago where all convicted felons had to have their DNA input into the CODIS database. And I, 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 had, I didn't see where, I'm trying to think back in uh, Jamie King, who was the DNA analyst's testimony, if they had run, I don't think that they ran the DNA profile that they found on the, the caller ID box through any kind of database. And, and, and also you have to understand that in order to run something through the database, there's a standard. So, you know, you have so many alleles in a DNA profile and, you know, at a certain number you can use to rule somebody out. If you get more of those loci, loci identified, then it's enough to rule somebody in or to say that, well, there's this, you know, a one in one trillion chance that the DNA came from this person. But there's a, there's a threshold of how many alleles, how many, how many loci, I think is the proper, I'm probably saying that wrong, that have to be present in order for them to put into a database. But that could be something, that could be an avenue that we could look at now is if we have that. You know, there's a couple things. One is the, the DNA profile there that wasn't apparently run through any database, if, if it wasn't, that we could try to run that through a database. And then also you have the hair found in Agnes's ring where they were not able to get a full profile off of it. In 2001, I believe it was before the mitochondrial DNA was, was being used prevalently, which is the ability to pull DNA off of a hair without the root. Uh, we saw that in the West Memphis 3 case. That's why, and that's why we, you know, that we have the hair that, that Terry Hobbs couldn't be excluded from and the hair that David Jacoby couldn't be excluded from. That's why those are not particularly helpful pieces of evidence uh, especially on the the, the Jacoby hair, because it, that one had even less. But mitochondrial DNA, it's not a nuclear profile, and it's passed down identically from mother to mother. So there are literally you know thousands and thousands and thousands of people that have the exact same mitochondrial DNA. But in this case, if the hair still exists and can be tested for mitochondrial DNA, what it can do is rule people out. So if they take the hair that's under her ring and they do a, a mitochondrial DNA test on it and then they compare it to Agnes and it's definitely not Agnes's and they compare it to Debbie and it's definitely not Debbie's and they compare it to Lloyd and it's definitely not Lloyd's well even though it may not be enough data to determine who it was you can't put mitochondrial DNA into the CODIS database what it can do is is tell you who didn't do it uh, if that hair but so that's another possibility is to do mitochondrial DNA testing on that hair my thought on the second possible DNA source, I mean, it could very well be the killer, the the true killer, if it's not Deborah. But I mean, there's a lot of ways that that could have got there. It could have been the granddaughter, the adopted daughter's daughter. Mm -hmm. I mean, it could have been something like that, which is why it didn't come back, because the, the child's DNA wouldn't be in anything right. you know, as far as being able to read it. Yeah, I think that from my understanding, that would have had to have been a long time before. I don't think that 
from what I hear from the family that Brenda, the adopted daughter, had much to do with the Courtney's uh, anymore. So like the, the meaning that the granddaughter wouldn't have been over at the house anytime recently. Debbie has a okay. daughter too that would have been there, but then mm-hmm. we would have seen a familial match. Okay. See, I, I just was thinking about things like that, whether, you know, I mean, there was, there's, there's a reason it's there, whether it's the killer or it could be, it could be the phone guy that came in to set the caller ID up for him. Right. And yeah, other people suggested that too. And, mm-hmm. and I don't know, there's a lot of possibilities. I find it odd that, you know, that both Debbie and someone else's profiles found on there, but Lloyd and Agnes's DNA profiles weren't found there, you know, and you think that they were hitting it more often than not which 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 to me would you know tend to indicate that maybe this was it was it was the killer's blood or something i i don't know i i, I don't know it, it's an odd one sarah says are we assuming they were killed by one o'clock simply because that was when lloyd was supposed to leave for work is it possible that they were held captive by the perp for several hours before being killed the perp could have entered before one o'clock stopping lloyd from leaving but the killing took place later in the afternoon that would help explain the whole lividity issue Absolutely. And uh, th- I've had this exact same thought. So we have two issues. One, we don't know when Lloyd was supposed to be to work. Now, I-, I don't think that we can take one neighbor's testimony that, oh, Lloyd always leaves at one for gospel. You know, maybe he left at one thirty. Maybe he actually left at two and they thought it was one. Maybe he left at noon. We just don't know. We don't. That's another big giant gap in the investigation is nobody tracked down when exactly or at least documented he was supposed to be at work. So we don't know for sure if he's supposed to leave at one, but that's exactly what I thought of was just because, say it was one, he always left at one, just because Lloyd didn't leave for work at one doesn't mean that he was killed before that. It very well could be that someone came into the house yeah, and was, was holding him captive or had injured them or you know whatever the case may be. It, somebody could have been in that house for hours after that before they actually killed them. But, you know, th- there's a whole lot of, Things that would have to piece together. I don't particular. I will say I don't particularly see evidence on the crime scene that would indicate that they were being held hostage. There's no indication that they had a weapon, you know, like a gun at least. But then again, there's no indication that they didn't have one, you know, because a lot of people said, well, well, Lloyd had a gun in there, and they obviously didn't have a gun. But there's also the fact that you know, even if they had a gun that they were using as a threat, that they didn't want to pull the trigger because what happens when you shoot a gun in the middle of a quiet neighborhood in the middle of the afternoon? Police are going to be there almost immediately, you know, so so they're, they could have had a gun and didn't want to use it. So anyway, it's a good point. It's a pos- definitely a possibility, something we have to think about that, you know, the attack, the break in, whatever it was you know, or however they were killed could have began well before the Courtney's were actually killed. I feel like if you take the captive theory, though, you have to throw out the damp theory. Like, I don't feel like they they fit together. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I mean. There's 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 I, I don't see evidence that that happened. You know, I, I I can't see Agnes, you know, going back. Well, as long as you're holding this hostage, I'm going to go take a nap. It doesn't it doesn't make much sense. So, yeah, it, it doesn't seem likely, but it's something that we can't rule out. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Sarah says, are the clothes of Agnes and Lloyd and the bedding still available for DNA testing? I'm having a difficult time envisioning the killer 
or killers stabbing and slitting throats without getting any DNA on the victims. I'm hoping MVAC testing can be done. Yeah, I hope so too. I, given the state of Texas evidence retention laws, they should still be available. You know, what's supposed to happen, and I believe this was, I think it was around 2001 when this law was passed, was that, you know, if someone is, is convicted of a crime, that all of the evidence in the crime, especially any biological evidence, has to be retained and maintained until their, their sentence is over. Which I mean, you know, if they have a life sentence and they have to store that forever, that, that way it allows them to, to have the ability to appeal. But yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Like, I don't, there's nothing. They didn't find one of Debbie's hairs. They didn't find any of her fingerprints. They didn't find any of her blood on the victims. You know, there's, there's just, it just see this is too violent of a crime for there not, for that not to have been the case. But then again, we're looking at 2001 DNA testing methods. And that's why I think MVAC would be a, a great way to go with this. If we could MVAC, uh, just the shirts of of both Agnes and Lloyd, I feel like the killer's DNA has got to be there somewhere. Well, and we also have the fact that we can tell that they haven't collected everything they needed to collect. So maybe they didn't try to swab for DNA or try to collect DNA the way they should have. Right. And I know there was a lot. Of, there were a lot of samples taken from the clothes, but I th- believe it all came back to Lloyd and Agnes. Brittany says, "What do you make of the white carpet in the kitchen not having much of a blood trail?" It doesn't surprise me. I mean, I, I don't see, I don't see indications on this crime scene that the killer would have been dripping blood. We had kind of the same question in season six, like how do they get through the house without without getting blood everywhere? I think it's as I'm thinking through this on the spot as another indicator, really that that maybe Debbie did anything to do with it because so the the issue is she's got blood because she has an open wound, right? And so if they ha- if a person has an open wound, that's when you would expect to find blood trailed through the house. So, you know, the attack on Lloyd, you know, starts in the, in, on the couch, ends in the dining room. There's plenty of blood all through there. The killers certainly would have blood on their person, but they wouldn't, there wasn't enough blood there that they would have blood pouring off of them somewhere or dripping off of them somewhere unless they had an open wound on themselves, like on their hand or somewhere, then you would expect their blood to be dripping between the two. But the fact that we have all the blood isolated to where the attack happened and then all the blood, again, isolated back to where Agnes's attack happened, and really nothing in between, is an indicator, not, not, uh, not a certainty, but it's an indicator that the killer themselves wasn't bleeding. See, and I, I think a little differently on that with her being cut and her blood being kind of at, uh, in a few choice places on the house. Uh, I find it strange that she was cut the day before and is still bleeding. Even if she reopened it, you... you Typically, don't you're not going to bleed that much from reopening a cut like that on your finger, mm-hmm. and then bleeding bad enough to bleed through the bandage is what she said to leave marks. It seems like you would also, if you were bleeding that bad, let let's let's say that's a hundred percent true, and, and you've you've cut your finger and then you reopen it and it's bleeding bad enough that you're bleeding through the bandage while you're doing things. I feel like you're going to notice that. Well, also, I mean, my understanding is, and again, we got to dig deeply into her testimony. It wasn't just that. She's saying that blood got on the house because she was bleeding through her bandage. I believe she was saying that she was bleeding through the bandage, so she removed the bandage and then rebandaged it there. You know, so there was a time when there was no bandage on her. And and also keep in mind, just and I'm not not disagreeing with you, but just just to be clear, you know, when we're talking about leaving lots of blood, we're talking about fingerprints. So like, say your you know, her cut was like right here on her finger. Mm-hmm. There's like there and there on her on her finger. So it wouldn't take the amount of blood of hers that we have on the scene. 
It wouldn't mean that she's like bleeding so bad as dripping blood all over the place. It's just enough that it got some blood, you know, on her finger. And then when she touched a couple things, it's it, it's all it's all all the blood of hers on the scene is all transfer blood. None of it is like dripped blood or spattered blood. It's transfer because she touched something while she had her blood on her finger. No, I, and I I completely get that, and that makes sense to me. It's just the fact that if you're bleeding bad enough to have to change the bandage, that means you're bleeding, right? You know, that's what I'm getting at. It's it's not just you know a, a little you got a little bit of blood on your finger and you touch something, and the same thing if you're if you're in between changing bandages and you're bleeding on stuff, you're not going to be touching stuff with an unbandaged hand. So I don't know. I just have a hard time finding, you know, as you stated in the episode that it seems very interesting that her blood is in a lot of places and very inconvenient for her. If it, if it's not her, right. It's either, it's either too convenient or very inconvenient. And I'm, I'm the same way. I'm still, I'm still really, I want to know why a DNA expert, the one thing in this case that points to Deborah Perringer was the DNA. Why was a DNA expert the one that submitted the case to the Innocence Project that, be- that believes she's innocent? That's a good point. And, and that's, like I said at the beginning of this, I don't have an opinion. I don't want to sound like I'm coming off like she did it or like she didn't do it. I just want to know answers to these questions like this. Yeah, me too. I'm still like, I, if it weren't for the DNA, so if we were looking at this case right now and it weren't for the fact that her DNA was on the scene, th- this is what's bothering me, is all evidence preliminary, easy, basic investigative stuff. Figure out time of death, figure out a window of opportunity, figure out who's alibied. Going through those steps, Deborah Perringer is eliminated, right? But then we have her blood on the scene. So so like there's there's like one element of the case that says 100% she did it. And there's another element of the case that says 100% she couldn't have done it. So yeah. I'm just, I, I'm definitely, I want to make clear, my mind is not made up right now. I am I do not have any confidence in the state's theory of the case. And there is certainly evidence to indicate that Debbie could have done this. And there's a lot of evidence also to indicate that she couldn't have done this. And so that's where I'm at right now is to where this is kind of rolled back into what one of our typical traditional cases is, where it seems likely at this point that there could have been a wrongful conviction that happened here. Not that I have my mind made up yet. Whereas at the beginning, I thought, I don't know, you know, and that, that's why the Innocence Project wanted us, to look, wanted us to look in the case was because they're like, ah, you know, there's 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 some issues here, but there's also compelling evidence that she did it, and they don't have they have such limited resources that they couldn't commit the time to do what we're doing right now, and that's what what we were tasked with is to figure out is this a wrongful conviction and something that the Innocence Project should put resources into resources like doing like the MBAC testing and things that we're just talking about. So I know I, I spoke with Allison Clayton yesterday and she's, and she's thrilled with what we found so far and, and she'll be back on the podcast soon, but she is, she is very, very thankful at how our listeners have engaged and have already helped clear up a lot of things in the case where there were big questions. Heather says, according to the autopsy report, a lot of the stab wounds are tracking upwards. Can this help with the height of the attacker? Or are there too many variables to take into account? There's just too many variables. We mentioned this a little bit. Uh, I think it was in episode one. Um, but yeah, they're, they're tracking upward. And the prosecutor tried to kind of lean into the fact that, oh, this is probably a short person stabbing up. But the, the fact is, Zach is slightly taller than me. If I stab Zach in the neck, guess what the angle is going to be? Oh, up. Up, right. <laughs> or <laughs> Sorry, I didn't know you were waiting for a reply. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Or uh, you flip it around. Zach is slightly taller than me, so I'm shorter than Zach. 
if he stabs me in the neck, it's going to be tracking up. Exactly right. Your arms are lower than your neck. So the stab wounds we have are all on a, on a high spot on the body. So even if someone's taller than their victim, there will still typically be an upward tracking motion uh, for the stabs. But also, it's just way too dynamic. We know at some point Lloyd was sitting on a couch. We know at some point he was laying on the ground. We know at some point he was moving away from the killer. And at some point, the killer was, was likely, you know, like kneeled over the top of him while he's laying on the ground. So we don't know when or where those, those came in. So with both parties moving, spanning across rooms, same is true of Agnes. Everything's, mo- everything's dynamic. At one point, she's on the bed. At one point, we know she was standing behind the door. And then she ends up, ends up flat on the floor. You know, we don't know when those, when those stabs came in. If they're already laying on the ground, it does, the angle doesn't tell us anything. So I, I don't think the angles tell us anything at all. Well, I was just about to say, it just came to me thinking about it, that I, I would think if a person is really short, you would almost have a downward angle because the person would be more likely to like backhand stab to reach upward. Yeah, that makes sense. But again, you know, there, there's just too many variables to really know. Brian says, do you think we can rule out the theory of Lloyd being attacked before Agnes arrives home from the store with her being killed in the bedroom? I agree that it looks like she was napping and appears that both were caught off guard and hit from behind with the skillets. In my opinion, yes, that can be ruled out. I, I, and, and again, this is my opinion. But to me, I mean, give me a break. There is the sheets are turned up. There's a pillow on the bottom of the bed. Her glasses are on the nightstand. She's found without her glasses on, with no shoes on. The, and, and also the time of death issues. Like, in, in my opinion, there's just no way she walked in on the, the attack happening. It's just not possible. I think it's possible that she was maybe napping, heard the attack on Lloyd, came out to the living room, and then retreated back to the bedroom. I think that's possible. I don't think it's probable. I don't think that, you know, partially because of the stab in the back, as we discussed, but it's possible. But yeah, I, I don't think there's way too much evidence pointing towards the fact that she did not walk in on the, on the attack. Sandy says, we have seen bodies being inexplicably flipped before. If this happened to Agnes when emergency services arrived, i.e. flipping her into the prone position, how in terms of lividity would this affect time of death? It would have a big effect if her body was flipped over, meaning if that's, if that's not. So what they're getting at is, say Agnes was killed at 10 in the morning and died laying on her back. And then, you know, seven hours later, EMS gets there and they flipped her onto her stomach, onto a prone position. Then that's why lividity would be fixed on her back. A couple things wrong with that. One, EMS would never do that. If we flip somebody, when, you know, Mike and I both used to work in this field, if you flip somebody over, you're flipping them onto their back, you know, the, the, because that's how you work. You don't work on somebody face down. Uh, so they would never flip her into a prone position. But then also, I went back and reviewed Michael Galusha's testimony, the first officer on the scene. And so he was the first one to walk into the house. And he described when he walked into the back bedroom, Agnes was laying on the floor face down. So based on that, we know she was prone the entire time, you know, for, from the time she was killed until her body was moved. Uh, sometime after midnight, probably closer to 1 a.m., she was prone that entire time. Nobody flipped the body. Okay, and Mike, I know you have one more question. Before we get into that, I want to, I want to, I want to point this out before we forget about it, or before I forget about it. In looking through a bunch of crime scene photos last night, I was going through some things with Allison Clayton and and trying to figure out a lot of stuff. Something I noticed, I don't think that the paring knife, and I know Zach, you've mentioned this, other people have mentioned it too. 
but I don't think that the paring knife was the murder weapon. And I, I've kind of assumed that it was because it's the knife that was found on the scene. It's a knife that we know was touched by the killer because it was stabbed into Lloyd's pant leg with the, with the note. And according to the medical evidence, that knife could be responsible for all the wounds. That's important because all that's telling us is, so what the ME said was none of the stab wounds were any deeper than the blade of the knife. And they were, none of them were any wider than one inch. So that two and a half inch paring knife could have made all those wounds. But in looking at close-ups of the knife last night, it occurred to me, the knife has a white plastic handle. And we have photos that are zoomed in very close to the knife. And there is not a speck of blood on that knife anywhere. I mean, I was able to zoom in to where the blade meets the hilt. Nothing in there. Also, adding to that, something that was in the DNA testimony that I didn't necessarily touch on during the episode was the fact that the drains being inspected for blood was not just a visual inspection. The crime scene investigator took swabs from every drain in the house and were all tested for blood, and none of them came posit- back positive for blood. Because the only thing I could think of was, well, if they used that knife as the weapon, they must have washed it off really good before putting it maybe to remove some evidence or something. But the fact is, the drains had no blood in them. The sinks had no blood in them. There was no indication anything was cleaned up. And that knife is pristine, other than being bent weirdly. Somebody somebody had said it was a grapefruit knife. And that's actually why I was looking at it. Are either of you guys young enough or old enough to know what a grapefruit knife is? Nope. No. (sighs) Whippersnappers. So a grapefruit knife, um, our our 40 plus in the audience listening to this will, will feel me on this. It's about the size of a paring knife, but the blade goes up and then it curves at the end and then it's serrated all the way around both edges. So the end doesn't come to a point. It's rounded and it's a serrated blade all the way around both sides and the end is bent and it's made. So when you take a grapefruit and you cut it in half, you know, each little segment in there, you would use that little curvy knife there to poke through the other little skin that's between the segments of an orange or a grapefruit and you would poke through that and then you would use it to scoop out the little section. So anyway, there was a discussion about that. It definitely is not a grapefruit knife. It is, in fact, a single-blade paring knife. But I don't think that knife was the murder weapon, which means that the stabbing wounds either came from another knife in the house, and I don't know that we have any indication anything was missing or not missing, so that doesn't help. Or if you think about a knife that's no wider than one inch and no longer than two – well, actually, we don't know that it was any longer than two and a half inches. We only know that it was only stabbed in two and a half inches, but it could have been a pocket knife. The killer could have brought a pocket knife with them. So I, I, I definitely, in my opinion, we can rule out the, the knife that was stabbed into Lloyd's leg as the murder weapon, even though the ME testified that it could fit all the wounds. There's just no way it wouldn't have any blood on it or any staining on it whatsoever. All right, our last question comes from Angie. Are you going to talk to the DNA analyst who got this started? I'm curious what she saw about the DNA that didn't add up other than it seems they didn't take DNA and prints from many places in comparison to the nightmare scuffle it seemed to be. I've been wondering the exact same thing, and so the answer to the question is yes. This week's episode, I had something else in mind. I'm going to be pushing it back to next week, because this week for our episode, I'm going to be interviewing that DNA analyst and having her explain to us why she thinks that Deborah Perringer could have been wrongfully convicted.
Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedIntandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 per month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. Lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at BobRuffTruth. Mike can be found at MurbGaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And Zach can be found at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. This has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.